Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the fantabulous Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once led a team of scientists on a mission into outer space, Mr. Ryan Seabold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It's going pretty well, man. This is our second to last episode of the season, which is tripping me out that we're already here. Uh, it's a hell of a fast season, especially with like the weekly releases that we got going on here. And uh, yeah, but before we uh, get into this week's film, why don't you tell us a little bit about this uh, situation with you and the scientists and a space mission and everything? Sounds interesting. It was interesting, Jason. With uh, our podcast season wrapping up, I got to find another side hustle. Um, <laughs> so uh, I decided to go up into space and float around a little bit. And, uh, you know, zero G's, uh, I think I'm studying the effect on zero gravity with this team of scientists on uh, uh, on podcasting and our sense of humor and, uh, and, and how we go about these things. Just kind of floating around. Um, you know, they say in space, no one can hear you scream. We're testing things out to see if anyone can hear us uh, podcast and, uh, you know, talk to each other and so forth. So um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A little uh, curious little tidbit of trivia. I am still up here floating around and broadcasting (laughs) to you live from space uh, in zero gravity, uh, conking my head on uh, uh, the space materials um, that they use for the spaceship here. It's not really friendly. uh, Uh, I thought you had that construction going on over there or something like that, but that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a painful business. The zero gravity podcasting uh, hosting is uh, treacherous, dude. By the uh, way, we're getting props to uh, props to your technology or your engineers or whoever it is that has you like beaming down in real time via satellite from space, man. Because you are coming through perfectly on my end, bro. Yeah, so uh, my voice is actually traveling through Houston. Uh, as in Houston, we have a problem. Uh, then what they do is they take my voice. Uh, they use it to strip away all women's rights and freedoms, and then it goes to you after they're through with it in Texas. Uh, they it, it catches <laughs> catches COVID uh, nineteen, and then it goes to you. So um, wow, it's like your this, voice. <laughs> I didn't realize like that your weird... voice had such a strong social impact. And yes, I mean, you know, yeah. generally we say that on the one way, but you know, you're bringing it the other way, which uh, you know, bringing a little Florida to Texas. I like it. A hundred percent more uh, misogyny. Uh, yes. Coming to you live through the airwaves, right into your ear holes um, to violate you <laughs> any way we can. Uh, way more than, than normal, I guess. So, uh, yeah, Texas. Huzzah. Hey. It's, um, what, what I'm hoping for is we get some, like along the way as we transfer and travel through Houston, we get some of those Joe Rogan bucks um, and uh. we get some sponsorships. Uh, my voice is going to be at least 50 pounds more bloated uh, because of it, uh, <laughs> as has happened to everyone that's moved to Texas. So thankfully yeah. you hey. already do HGH, though. So, you know, you like 
You have those delts that kind of swallow your neck. So you got that yes. going for you already, which is nice. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, HDH, uh, the, the uh, human humor, humor, humor growth hormones. Uh, yeah, we're trying to make it funnier here. But, ah, uh, humor growth funny. hormone. I like it. <laughs> Where do I find me some of that? <laughs> Not here, sir. Somewhere else on another <laughs> podcast far, far away. It would be uh, dope, by the way, dude, if you were actually out there like beaming off signals and then there was just some like really cinematically knowledgeable alien that swooped down and was like, hey, bro. I listened to you and your boys Tucker and Dale review. I got issues. Let's get into it. Because, <laughs> like, yeah. everybody and their mom has, like, jumped up our ass over our dislike of Tucker and Dale. <laughs> That's true. That's it would just true. be Even funny. It's like, like, it just, it spans, not only spans continents here on Earth, it spans planets. That fucking movie needs some HGH, if you ask me. <laughs> Um, I will say that it, it makes perfect sense that we'll probably get our first listeners, uh, from beyond the cosmos before we get our first listener in Montana or the Dakotas. <laughs> so, well, uh, and don't forget, there, dude, you're on your, uh, you're on your mission to get us our, uh, expedition team in Antarctica, right? I am. Yes. Uh, and that. yes, uh, I'm trying to find the, uh, original alien from the thing from John Carpenter's, the thing that landed oh, yeah. on earth and started disguising itself. I thought they would be a good, uh, a good host to bring our podcast. Oh, to oh, oh, the- oh, did you? Did you really? Yeah, I'm not buying your shit host alien. OK, that's exactly <laughs> what the host alien would say. Get the hell out of here with that. <laughs> I'm Ryan. That's, the thing. <laughs> that's what I'm telling you. Want to play chess? Want to play a game? Let's do this. Um, <laughs> that's what we're doing. Human things. Uh, what humans do like Eep, podcasts. Boop, Oh, wait, that's a yeah. robot. <laughs> I mean, if aliens came to Earth right now, I think they would say, how do we blend in? Oh, wait, everybody's got a podcast. So let's just start a podcast. And yeah. And here we are. 100%. They would uh, grab a podcast and then they would also grab a uh, camera. And then, uh, well, at least if they were here in L.A., they would grab a camera because everyone does that, too. Yeah. Aliens doing TikTok dances and then body dysmorphia <laughs> shortly thereafter. Good stuff. Starring Kurt Russell and Wilfred <laughs> Well, on that note, on the note of body dysmorphia, have we got a film for you guys this week? Ryan, tell our audience what we're doing. This week from 1982, we're doing Godfrey Reggio's Koyaanisqatsi from 1982. Uh, this is listed on Google as drawing its title from the Hopi word meaning the Hopi Native American word, meaning life out of balance. This renowned documentary reveals how humanity has grown apart from nature, featuring extensive footage of natural landscapes and elemental forces. The film gives way to many scenes of modern civilization and technology. Given its lack of naturation and dialogue, the production makes its points solely through imagery and music, with many scenes either slowed down or sped up for dramatic effect. Uh, this has got music by Philip Glass. This has got uh, cinematography by Ron Fricky, who went on to do Baraka and Samsara. This is, uh, whew, I mean, this is something we described this last week as going to be uh, being a bit of an experiment of sorts because we weren't sure if there was going to be a lot to talk about or nothing to talk about. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how this goes because there's no dialogue. It's just a bunch of sweet, sweet pictures. Jason, as always, buddy, what did you think about this movie? Well, Ryan, normally I would try to either, you know, cut to a trailer or do the fake out right now. Not even going to do that because, as Ryan said, there is no narrative whatsoever to speak of in terms of the plot. And there are no actors. There are no characters, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, there's no dialogue, so there is no trailer. Uh, it's another, uh, which I feel like we've had a lot of those this year between all the all the foreign films that we've done and some of the artsier ones that we've done. Um, yeah, so fuck uh, it, <laughs> fuck it all. Who gives a shit? Format be damned. Uh, this is what we do on this show. Just throw the rules out sometimes and just roll with the punches. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you, Ryan, that uh, I really enjoyed this film, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to get into it here. And I uh, just need to know where we should start. I honestly, dude, I don't know that it matters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is the what? first time. <laughs> okay. By the way, on that note, real quick, before we continue, okay? Uh, okay. If anybody out there like me tries to save a buck or two by looking for streams of films on like YouTube and shit like that. Uh, don't do that. Okay. Because here's the thing. This is an artsy silent film. And so for example, if you started watching the film and it was playing in reverse, you wouldn't necessarily know that. And let's say you were the type of person where you didn't, you didn't know that. You might even say watch for 10, 15, 20 minutes before you kind of started to suspect that maybe something was off and looked into it and realized, oh, this film is actually not presented in reverse like this free YouTube stream <laughs> that I am watching. So if you should happen to be one of those people, my suggestion is not to go down that road. Uh, I actually ended up watching this on Voodoo of all places because uh, it was one of the few places that I could rent it for the four bucks. But uh, yeah, so again, like this is totally a film that could be presented backwards, Ryan, to your point. And I like I literally for 15 minutes, I thought the film was just being artsy. And then I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> I need Talk to cross about, out these two uh, pages out of, of notes and restart this from the, the, the correct <laughs> streaming platform. Yes, absolutely. So I had a bit of a issue watching this as well. I watched this. Um, I went to go do the right thing and go pay for this on Amazon and they were going to rent it to me. And I started watching it and then I realized, man, this looks like hot garbage in a, in a, uh, in a film that's is standing pretty much solely on its beautiful imagery to tell a story or, or some kind of narrative to derive from it. Um, when the, the imagery is lackluster, i.e. shit, uh, you, you start to really get bummed out uh, about sure. five minutes in, I got frustrated and realized, oh, I'm watching this in standard ass definition, uh, which is the only way Amazon would present this film. Oh, so wow. I had to go back to the drawing board, regroup, dust myself off and found out Apple TV presents this shit in HD. So nice. I went and re-rented it. I have paid for this film twice. I own it once. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And my, uh, my bank mean, account is now out of balance. Awesome. <laughs> and for <laughs> what it's worth, uh, Voodoo was fine. I mean, I had a very good experience watching it. It's just like such an unsexy platform. It's like, who watches stuff on Voodoo? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, plus, they like only give it to you for 24 hours. At least Amazon gives it to you for like 48 or 72. That way, if your ass falls asleep watching it late at night, like you can try again tomorrow. <laughs> For yeah. Voodoo, you're going to like be racing against the time. Like, shit, what time did I fall asleep? I got to start it in time. Duh. It's like driving a Mercury or like a Kia maybe where it's like it drives fine. It gets me to work, but not really the sexiest option. Voodoo, get your movies here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, either way, Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and I am going to start at the beginning. I finally get to say it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I feel like I didn't even sell it, too. I'm going to try that one again. Uh, <clears throat> Ryan, I'm going to start. 
Much better. Much better. All right. So when we open on Koyaanisqatsi, we start on an extreme close-up of what appears to be a cave wall or a cliff face featuring crude black illustrations that seem to resemble people. A synthesizer drones in the foreground as chants of the word Koyaanisqatsi are repeated in what sounds like Native American language. Now the camera zooms out slowly to eventually reveal another illustrated figure among the others, this one larger and differently colored, standing with some sort of crown or halo adorned at the top. Now this suggests, to me anyways, some sort of like interstellar traveling vehicle, perhaps even an otherworldly being, certainly something different than the rest of the illustrations surrounding it. Now, Ryan, as we mentioned, this review of this film, Koyana Scotsi, is going to be a little bit different in that normally we're just going to walk people through the plot and sort of use the main character's journey to guide the discussion. We don't really have that here, uh, but what we do have is we have a series of concepts that do end up getting presented by way of the images. So right. this is while- going to be more film discussion based versus you know, narrative based or what. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna... So, so instead of a, you know, a clear cut sort of, you know, guy moves from beginning through to the middle, you know, arriving at the end, I think this is more going to be looking at some of these sequences as they're presented and really just trying to break them down and seeing exactly, you know, what ideas they may or may not be communicating. So agreed with that said, I would actually like to start with this opening shot and ask you, what did you think the illustration that we were that was exposed to us? What were we looking at, and what did you think that was an illustration of? What did you think that scene represented? Okay, so um, real quick uh, disclaimer of sorts: I've seen this movie uh, a handful of times. Okay, um, I love these guys, uh, Reggio and Fricky uh, and Philip Glass. You really Those say the Fricky, by the way? That's like actually how it you is. pronounce it. It's not Ron. Frick. I believe that to be the case. Yeah, because <laughs> that sounds um, like. A family restaurant that you go to. Hey, guys, let's go to Frickies. <laughs> Yay, Frickies. Yep. Uh, I mean, that's how I feel when I watch his movie. So I'll go along with that. Uh, this is so this is a, uh, a, a you know, the, the three names you need to be familiar with as we move forward are Godfrey Reggio, who's the director, Ron Fricky, who's the cinematographer and Philip Glass, who did all the music. Most people have heard of Philip Glass. He's a pretty well renowned um, uh, orchestrator of sorts or musician, um, conductor, composer. Uh, And uh, and he's done films and TV shows, uh, you know, uh, that people are familiar with. If we went down the list, Um, kind of one of those experimental guys like uh, in that Brian Eno camp. Correct. Yep. Um, But uh, Fricky went on to go do things like Baraka and Samsara. Um, and <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to do it the whole time. Every time you call his name, I'm going, yay. <laughs> uh, Reggio went on to go do two more in this Katsi trilogy. And, uh, um, oh, I got one for so- Reggio too. Ready? Reggio, 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 Reggio. <laughs> oh, there you are, Peter. I got it. Got it. Everyone's favorite film, Hook. Uh, the best <laughs> Spielberg film. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I love this movie. This is something that I got really into back in the day. Um, I saw Samsara in theaters. I've seen Baraka many times. I think Baraka is the best out of all of these. 
the other two Kotsi movies you can kind of skip over. Not really my thing. Um, the third one, uh, I don't have the name in front of me, but I believe he got into some experimental computer animation uh, that mm. he mixed in with some of the time lapsey beautiful stuff and it just it looks real dated um and uh, didn't really hold up as well so um this first shot uh, all that to say i did know what it was this is the um great gallery in utah uh we start off in utah and we go over several mountains in utah um look over uh i believe monument valley and some of those types of things that we're all familiar with with the red uh, rocks and stones and things uh, kind of goes in with the Native American chant, as you were talking about with the Koyana Scotsi, the uh, mm. it's a really low guttural Koyana Scotsi. Yeah, bassy. it's like that like throat singing. Yeah, yeah. Almost like the uh, the, the monks uh, we talked about last season, uh, the, the Celtic chants that happened in the early 90s. Um, but, uh, that were really popular, but, uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, this is, uh, those, um, those cave paintings are dated back, I believe 1500 years in theory. Uh, there's some debate about that, but yeah, about 1500 years old, uh, for mm-hmm. those cave drawings and done by native Americans or those who were here long before us. So, uh, that is those things exist in Utah. It starts and finishes on those, uh, in the, film and uh yeah a couple things to note too on the intro and then i'll throw it back to you um that stood out to me number one uh the title card for koyana scotsi was the most 8-bit sega genesis looking shit i've seen in a long time like that looked like i was playing a sega genesis game like with the the title card that like comes up from the ground i mean granted 1982 computers were kind of i think that might have been like your your that that bad quality stream you were talking about mine looked fine I mean, it just the animation looked like really dated. Like it looked like Altered Beast. Like I was playing Golden Axe or something like that. That's what it reminded me of. Uh, but then also the other thing that stood out to me that I did not know uh, and did some research on is this was produced by Francis Ford Coppola, which I thought was really cool. Um, he attached yeah. his name to it after the fact. Uh, I so so, my, so I think that I'm pretty certain it's it wasn't originally. I don't think he had anything to do with it originally. I think he's responsible he for getting it back because my understanding, and I didn't look too deep into this, but I think I remember hearing something where like there was some issue with the rights or the footage or something. And so it was released, but then like it basically uh, couldn't exist commercially because they had problems securing the rights. And then I think Francis Ford Coppola probably put up some money to get that taken care of and then threw his name on there. Is that kind of what happened? Uh, I think there was, yeah, there was some rights issues as far as global uh, marketing versus domestic and how to get it onto, because, you know, in 1982, the one thing we know, we, this has come up a couple times in discussion, but you just don't think about it anymore. Like uh, home video did not exist in 1982, uh, the way, the way that we know that you can just go to a place and go rent some shit that did not happen back then. So when that became a thing, um, they didn't even have that really negotiated um, because as indie filmmakers, they weren't thinking that far ahead or like what to do if this happens. So, um, you know, whereas like a normal film, a studio will own all the rights to something. This was owned by a bunch of different people for a bunch of different reasons and a bunch of different places. And uh, just to get it made because it was like, so uh, we're going to get into all this, but this started as a ACLU series of short films in the seventies. This took six years to make, And they started, so they started making this in 1975 and, um, they kind of just piecemealed it together over, uh, six years and, um, shot it 
at various stages whenever they could get money and this and that. So uh, rights were never really a thought uh, other than just let's just get this thing done and get it out there. Um, so then, you know, when distribution became a thing in the 80s, uh, they had to really kind of broker that. And you're right. I do think Coppola stepped in, but I do think he was attached to the project before that. I think he helped as well with uh, theatrical distribution um, because uh, this was premiered, I believe, at Radio City Music Hall, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So interesting. Um, so that's yeah, a, so that's a bit, a, bit of a run. Yeah. So that's a lot of stuff, Ryan. But you still haven't mentioned what you think that 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 illustration is representing what do you think it's showing us right there what are we looking at this whole film is going to show um the intertwining of technology versus nature and so we start uh in our most bare bones um example of humans existing in their former home of nature um and so so, those are people paintings i think the cave painting I th- I don't know that it really matters. I think that there are paintings. No, but I'm asking that- you. What do you? Th- it's it's a picture of something. What is your personal opinion of the picture? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just asking what you think the picture is of. I, I don't know that it matters, but uh, <laughs> the non-answer, man. Jesus, okay. I, it really doesn't. Uh, it's that's what that's what these films are. If you're not going to interpret what's there. <laughs> like we don't have a narrative to go through. It's just going to be an info dump. So we have to interpret what we're seeing. And so that's kind right. of what no, I'm asking uh, okay. you. Like, let, what let, do you let, think let's we're go. seeing? Absolutely. I then- want to throw this out. So by the way, have you ever heard of a book called the 12th planet? I have not. The 12th planet is a batshit crazy book from the seventies. If not the sixties, this guy, uh, he's actually a doctor, though that doesn't mean anything here. Dr. Zechariah Stitchin. He's a Russian guy. And he basically posits that uh, humanity was born from a superior race of people that, you know, we, we were fashioned in their image. And they exist on this planet that is actually part of our solar system, but is somehow like not observable. Right. And it only comes around every, I don't know, 12,000 years, I think, is his theory or something like that. Uh, And it's called the 12th planet. And he basically posits that like a lot of the old like Native American illustrations that we've seen, like such as what's presented in this film, are actually uh, scenes and illustrations of the original creators and the original beings that used to be here. So, like, for example, he would look at this image and he would say, oh, uh, so the black figures actually represent humanity. And then there's this giant figure here in the middle that stands out from the rest of them. And he would either say probably like one of two things like, well, that's that's the superior race. Those are the race of our creators presented as larger than us to show reverence to the fact that they are our gods. Essentially, that's who we're born from. Those are our creators. Or uh, he also posited he was big on like rockets. So he thinks that like all of these, he thinks that basically the created, the race that created humanity also invented these interstellar rockets, right? It's kind of like some Scientology shit. It's fucking way out there, dude. And uh, so, and, and, and all of these different like illustrations that we see are basically them 
talking about the rockets and they talk about like how Shem, apparently Shem is some word in the Bible that's been historically interpreted as one thing. And he's like, oh, all the historians have it wrong. They say Shem is, you know, family or people or whatever. And it's rockets. So they're literally people of the rockets because they're people of the Shem and the rockets were what took the great ancestors back home. And it's like, wow, that's nuts. So anyways, uh, so yeah, so I'm just all of that to say that, uh, like I said, yeah, old boy Stitchin would look at an illustration like this and say, that's people, and in the middle is the rockets that, that the gods used to come down and give birth to the creation of our species. Well, the, there's people, like, silhouetted, uh, and then there's, like, a, a big guy with a mask or something, uh, if I recall. And I don't know if that's, like, a uh, like a leader of sorts, because I know in a lot of uh, ancient tribes and, and, you know, African tribes and things like that, you'll see people wear masks to ward off spirits or yeah. to transfer people to the great beyond, or if it's a literal representation of a god or their god or, um, yeah, I have no idea. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's so interesting about like a lot of these old images, dude, is it's like, I mean, they could be, they could, the, 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 the figures in this image could represent statues or they could represent yeah. humans. Like there was right. such a lack of understanding about the world at large and everything was based on very limited experiences with earth. And there's a lot of mysticism and things like, so it's like, you know, you could get really creative interpreting this stuff. It's kind of like Easter Island, like those heads on Easter Island and, and, uh, yeah, you know, exactly. In Polynesia. Yeah, and it's yeah. really fun to just sort of, you know, sit there and like, you know, arm armchair postulate on like what the hell these things could possibly be. Sure. We will so, never know. <laughs> As we move forward <laughs> in the film, though, we dissolve to a slow motion explosion. It's kind of an industrial setting. We see some particles that are falling almost like ice shards. And then the screen flashes white. We realize that we're watching a rocket take off. And this is actually sort of one narrative concept that the film is going to borrow which is the element of foreshadowing right like this image basically sets up the image at the very end which we'll get to and uh so there are some narrative concepts that the film does incorporate from there we get helicopter shots of canyons and they accompany close-ups of rock formations and we juxtapose that with wide shots of these desert dunes and we see rivers flowing and all of this by the way is edited to the beat of philip glass's score which by the way is wonderful and enigmatic and interesting and we'll get to the score in a minute as well uh ryan uh, what do you think this presentation of these images sped up as it is? Uh, what do you think that that's suggesting of the, the canyons and such? Yeah. Um, I think so. It's my understanding that as you go through this film, they do a lot to play against types. So, um, you know, certain images that could be relaxing, are sped up or played music against type to make them feel more chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the whole film is really a juxtaposition again of, of technology versus nature and our transference of how we exist. We're shifting to exist in one versus the other back in 1982. That was uh, the first time they had really, kind of taken pause to take a look at this concept. Now it's so apparent and we've got movies like the matrix really to lean on to show us, you know, how that works. But, uh, uh back then they didn't, you know, they, they hadn't really taken a beat to see how these progresses in technology were affecting humanity. Um, you know, 
they were still looking at the world like the Wonder Years with Fred Savage. So, um, you know, uh, coming out. And again, uh, it's worth remembering that they started this film in 1975, which is, you know, pretty, pretty hard to wrap your head around. So uh, I think it just eases you into it. We're, we're starting in nature. Um, beautiful, epic, tall. We end up going into um, Hoover Dam and then uh, a lot of. Um, was it oil derricks or some kind of power structures? Is that correct? And we start to shift slowly into technology existing in nature and how these things kind of intersect. So we start in like Monument Valley and all these mountain, beautiful mountain canyon ranges, uh, mountain ranges of uh, like Utah and Montana, different areas. And then we start to uh, shift into how we uh, as humans have start to uh, put technology in nature, like Hoover Dam and stuff. Uh, How about you? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a large part of it is setting up that scene um, and starting off with really just the sort of to me, what the sequence really is doing is to your point, it's really sort of setting up the, you know, nature element. But it's also telling us and showing us just the harmony of nature and how well everything fits together and the commonalities across these various natural systems that exist, you know, and this is something that I think is very interesting about physics is that, you know, physics transcends a lot of the different systems. You know, you can see commonalities in, you know, the, the way that the human body operates and the way that a car operates, right? Um, It's not going to be a 100%, you know, this like that, but uh, just from the system of like, there's various components and, you know, this system works individually here, right? Like you have the respiratory system in the human body and you have, um, you know, the suspension system in the car and they serve one function and you build that with other functions and systems and they all work together in harmony to create one being that works and functions as one singular entity. And I think that's kind of what this film is doing with nature. And I think that's part of even down to the way that it's edited. We see the images are edited on beat to Philip Glass's score. And that's the visuals moving forward in harmony with the audio. So we see that everything fits together. And additionally, I think that he's showing us that because, so like one of the things that I thought was so awesome is where he's showing the clouds, you know, in the sky as they're moving across mountains and he speeds it up. And what I noticed is that those clouds at the top of these mountains, you know, this giant cloud layer, you know, spanning however many dozens and hundreds of yards and miles, etc., sped up, it moves exactly the way that steam moves in a San Francisco Bay in the morning or even on your, you know, a pot of boiling water in your kitchen on a particularly sure. cold day, you know, and the way the steam spirals up along the sides of the container and out. And I think that it's just showing us. And then even where he shows the, he takes the the desert dunes and shows like the sand sort of roiling and, and blowing off the top of that. And again, sped up, it almost blows off of the desert dunes like steam. And then he also cuts yeah. that with the hot springs. And so I think he's basically showing us like, look, 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 look at nature and how harmonious it is and how well everything works and fits together and how, you know, these naturally made systems are all very much like one another. Well, and something else I have in my notes, too, that that stood out to me about these opening scenes, um, it, showing the mountains and, you know, these uh, these beautiful mountain ranges and then cutting to some of the chaos that we see later, um, you know, the, the mountains themselves are 
kind of a it, it's nature's violence. It's nature's disorder, right? It's uh, fault lines clashing together or volcanic eruptions mm-hmm. uh, millions of years ago that have caused these things to buckle up the ground itself to lift and, and lower and raise its erosion and violent rain. Uh, that has caused uh, these rock formations to wither away over millions of years. So, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, I think it would be easy for your first viewing to watch this and say, oh, nature is so beautiful and peaceful and we've ruined it because we've done these things. But also, I think you could easily go the other way and say that um, just as man has used brute force and, uh, you know, had to innovate to create certain large structures and, um, you know, like the, the buildings and, you know, the, there's the demolition scene that's pretty famous coming up. Uh, but also we have that in nature over a long period of time on a much larger scale that have caused these beautiful formations. Uh, and there's there's all this uh, majesty that was created through violence and and. Um, erosion and withering away and destruction uh so uh, that exists in both mankind and without you know um that was something that i kind of took away from this opening scene as well yeah yeah and that's an interesting concept and i think that we'll probably let's go ahead and bring because i think that's gonna dovetail into the ending and we can sort of see how that statement compares to what he may or may not have been trying to say with the final end credit sequence, or not the end credit sequence, but the uh, challenger scene at the end, uh, which I sure, feel like is kind right. of the culmination of the film. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 come back to that statement. That's interesting. And yeah, I do think that you know the next scene is where we do see you know there's the intro of I think it's like a giant tractor trailer or some sort, and it's belching black smoke, and then you know we see the uh, power towers carrying the power lines, and they're you know stretching across this otherwise pristine desert landscape. And then from there we see, you know, they're, they're testing missiles in the desert with, you know, the obvious like mushroom explosions and the black smoke belching from the earth with that, which by the way, Ryan, um, have you ever seen or heard of a a film called lessons of darkness? I have not. So, so if you, yeah. So if, uh, if you and anybody listening, uh, enjoys Koyana Scotsy, uh, check out lessons of darkness. It's a documentary from my my boy, Werner Herzog, who, you know, I love, and uh, it's actually very similar to this film. It's mostly, uh, it's images of the, uh, I believe it was in Iraq in the early nineties when the oil fields were burning. Okay. Yeah, in the deserts. And so um, just, you know, large, large scale, uh, you know, pools of oil just, you know, on fire. And he basically got a helicopter and a camera and went around and just took, you know, a bunch of aerial footage and then compiled it into, you know, roughly 70 something, 80 minute film uh, and paired it to mostly opera music. And then there's just like, I think at like six different intervals, he kind of comes on and delivers this little Werner Herzog haiku and then shuts up. So very similar to this. <laughs> um, and it just, it, it felt, it felt, it was interesting because it kind of felt like this particular sequence where they're blowing off all the missiles in the desert. Um, it kind of feels like a, a, a much more expanded version of that, uh, which is also interesting because I feel like there's maybe a sort of a like a bit of like mutual influence going on here because I feel like that like this sequence very well could have influenced what Werner Herzog did with Lessons of Darkness. But what's interesting is so immediately after that, too, um, we sort of see these, uh, you know, we get a quick shot of some people on the beach and it's a beach where there's like a nuclear generator, you know, very close by. So there's obviously that contrast. And then we see like the 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 we see a plane landing. 
And it's a very long shot where we get all that like wavy, hazy, distorted air, right? That you typically see yes. around. Um, this is the really longest scene in the film. It clocks yeah. in over two minutes. Yeah. And Phil Glass wrote a whole piece of music just for this. Which we'll, is we'll awesome. Talk about and what's also cool, so just sort of like bringing back my point and then we'll get we'll continue, is that you sure. know, if it's the case that um, Herzog was influenced by that for Lessons of Darkness, in the late 60s, I believe 68, 69, so predating even the start of this film by five or six years, uh, he did a, his one of his first documentaries called Feta Morgana. And I actually have this and it's not a good movie, actually, unfortunately, but it's <laughs> okay. the same template, right? Where it's, a, it's, you know, 70 something, 80 something minutes and uh, it's mostly presented, you know, without narrative and it's just a bunch of images and kind of I don't think that one's set to music quite the, the way the other ones are. But he set out to get an entire film of mirages in the desert. And so the so the first five minutes is uh, like quick jump cuts of like five, six, seven planes landing with the hazy mirage uh, air in front of it. Exactly like this sequence. And he was doing that six, seven years before these guys did. So it would just be really interesting if somehow they got each like their eyes on each other's footage. And, you know, then that inspired something that would be born five, seven, ten years later. You think you uh, see a plane, but there's nothing there. There's just uh, the hole in your heart and the uh, emptiness of humanity in the desert. Uh, uh, We have put wings on uh, that emptiness and we fly it to another location only to be empty there as well. (laughs) United Airlines, uh, fly with us. Um, We will get you there, uh, wherever there is. United Airlines. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's my excellent bravo guy. bravo yeah. such a good one <laughs> which by the way uh anybody out there feel free to try it it's not as easy as it makes it sound i do a very bad one myself you should um take a trip to see your parents because they are quickly becoming swallowed by um the, the rabid mouth and hunger of death and uh, <laughs> they w- wish to give you a hug for the holidays now in the next <laughs> sequence <laughs> We've got cars driving on a highway. They're in fast motion. We see a lot of that same wavy air as the planes, which is suggesting that this particular effect is a vehicular one. And then we see some cars parked in a lot. And then that's sort of compared to like a huge bunch of tanks that are parked in lots as well. That then leads us to our military planes flying through the desert. That's where we get a lot of the different missiles and launched. And all of this is set to this sort of very shimmery, hallucinatory music. Now, Ryan, one thing we really haven't gone into detail on is the Philip Glass score. So yes. I'm sure you have some some words about this. Why don't you tell us what you thought about this score? I did a pretty deep dive on this one. Um, I watched a documentary, a 25-minute documentary that was included on the uh, DVD release uh, that you could find on YouTube, if you look hard enough, uh, which you will have to, I promise you. Uh, It's called (laughs) Essence of Life, I believe. And uh, it's an uh, interview with uh, Godfrey Reggio and Philip Glass. Unfortunately, Ron Fricke was not in that. Um, But Philip Glass talks about how they... So he... Normally what you would do is you make a film and then you show it to the person scoring said film and they score said film. Oftentimes... You know, there's the the trademark shots of like John Williams watching Star Wars on the big screen and he's doing the thing, you know, and conducting the orchestra 
to change with, you know, for the piece of music that he's written. So to make sure it fits just right with the emotion of that scene in this particular film, they actually worked it backwards. They started that way. Uh, and then Reggio liked Philip Glass's music so much that he decided he was going to recut the film to the music in a different fashion. So Glass wrote the music and then to the film and then Reggio re-edited and recut it. So they kind of like worked in harmony back and forth um, with each other. Uh, this certain pieces of music work against type. Um, for example, what we were just talking about with the two and a half minute uh, sequence of the airplane uh, landing and tracking towards camera. Um, he wrote a piece of music called Vessels. Um, that in, in the documentary, he goes at great length to talk about how he thought um, there was something majestic about how heavy and beastly planes look on the ground, but how light they look in the sky and how they can mm. just traverse thousands of miles, uh, you know, uh, weightless like a bird. Uh, but then when they land, they're this big and, you know, cumbering thing. And so we're seeing it on the ground in this heavy bloated format, you know, coming at you. Um, the nose of the plane is coming right to camera. And so, uh, very in your face, but he wrote this very light, um, piece of music uh to really kind of he wanted to add that element of how they feel in the sky and in the air and so he again played against type and and there's a lot of that going on in the film whether it's a lot of um uh, very quick paced high tempo uh piccolo you know really um uh, you know, high, high beat, uh, high pitch, uh, like brass and, and string instruments. And then sometimes it's very low and bellowing, uh, yeah. that kind of give ominous tones and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, like the opening sequence with the Koyana Scotsy choir. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, the, I don't remember the exact piece of music that was playing. I'd have to go back and rewatch it. One thing we should mention, or I should mention very quickly is you're going to start asking me these specific questions. This film as much as i tried so hard to take notes beat by beat this thing moves pretty quick so yeah. it's hard to like look down at your paper and i'm like scribbling out notes because i handwrite all my notes because i'm old as fuck and then i'm like looking Same. up and we're like already onto this and we're already onto that and they're showing me people and i'm on a beach and there's tanks and there's cars and explosions and now there's an airplane and so i did the best i could if i miss specific references like uh you know certain things i got Sure. nailed down uh, and then other things is like man i remember that scene but i don't remember necessarily the exact piece of music yeah. that was playing during that time well actually ryan um, this, this is actually a, a perfect example to bring up um so okay. uh on your remote so you're gonna look down and as you're watching your film you're gonna notice that there's a button that has two vertical lines next to one oh, another dick. <laughs> okay <laughs> now what that's called is that's called the pause button Okay, one more time I'll say right. it for you. Pause is what it's called, okay? Right. And what it yeah. does is it actually stops the movie in its place so that you can actually, like, you know, go make a quick note, grab a drink, whatever, come back, press the button again, picks up right where you left off, dude. It's nuts. <laughs> so just want to throw that out there next time you find yourself in that situation. Appreciate it, dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the best part of the show, giving Ryan shit. <laughs> I will say that this is a movie to me go um, that that resonates more as an overall experience. It kind of washes over you. Um, it also is best enjoyed not taking notes 
for whatever it's worth. Um, you know, I mean, sure. So. It's uh, you know, I mean, I think you could say that about most films to be completely honest. Like, I mean, I, I, I love, you know, taking notes for the films for this show and the level of detail that it provides, but yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of work. It kind of takes, uh, you know, a nice relaxing film and turns it into a little bit of homework, but it's still, you know, the best homework you'd, you do, but it's still homework, right? Well, it's like Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, right? Like, you could sit there and dissect that song by song, track by track, and then Great Kick in the Sky, and she comes in, and you got the saxophone solo and blah, blah, blah going on. But Or you can just, like, sit back on your couch and put on a good set of headphones and just let the whole experience wash over yeah. you start to finish. And uh, this is kind of that level of experience, I think, best enjoyed. So for whatever yeah, that's worth. Absolutely. And the interesting thing, too, is so after that sequence, uh, he cuts to these buildings and the Philip Glass score, like the music pretty much completely cuts out. You know, so so going back to what you were saying about the film uh, presenting juxtapositions just as much as it does sort of comparative qualities and it uses that to great effect. We see these sort of like decrepit buildings and we hear sort of wind howling as we start to like track along water. And then there's these really cool shots where we're sort of like looking around the corners of buildings and there are these kind of skyscrapers. And the way that it's presented with the shadowing and the lighting and the music and everything, it almost has this very sinister effect, right? Like it almost feels like there's like the buildings themselves have dark secrets or something to hide, right? And to me it was interesting because again, going back to that like the influence that this film may or may not have had, that sequence felt very much like the opening credit sequence to Panic Room which as we've talked about is not a great David Fincher movie, but has a a really brilliant credit sequence. And I feel like he probably utilized a lot of the shots and a lot of similar techniques that they did here to achieve that. Also, by the way, interesting real quick, just again, going full circle, people uh, influencing others. Um, I know that you started watching Succession recently, as a lot of people did. Uh, When's the last time you watched the David Fincher movie, The Game? Been a while been so long right uh i actually just yeah they had the criterion disc on sale randomly you know on like you know some sort of sale or whatever and i grabbed it because i was like oh i remember liking that and price was right blah 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 so i watched it again dude the entire opening successions credit sequence like that's in the game like it starts off like they're 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 showing uh, this like great party from their youth, like Sean Penn and, and Michael Douglas or whatever. It's the exact same sequence, dude. It's nuts. Shit. And so it's so funny to like we often forget how much like films and, you know, works of art, uh, television, documentaries, what have you influence some of the stuff that we'll watch, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. And it was really interesting to see multiple examples of scenes that were done in this film that I believe influenced other films later. Yeah, no doubt. Now, we have talked about Mr. Fricky. Yay! And I believe that... (laughs) And it's funny, too, because at the start of the show, you called it, like, Godfrey Reggio's Koyaanisqatsi. And I, that's yes. kind of one of the things that's interesting to me is like, I don't know that this film belongs to Reggio any more than it belongs to Fricky or Glass. And I think that's one of the most interesting things of this film is it's like a he perfect marriage of the three of them bringing equal shit to the table. And I loved that yes. about this. I thought that was so really cool. I, I would argue that it's more and I think Reggio would back me up on this. It's more Fricky and Glass's film than it is. Probably. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's made all the more apparent because after this film, he parts ways with Fricky. Fricky goes on to direct and produce his own films of the same ilk and to better effect. And Reggio does it to lesser effect. And my, that's my personal take on it. So and did Philip Fricky, did Fricky do the Glass. other films that you were talking about? Like Samsara? And he did Baraka, Baraka and, and Samsara. Yes. Nice. He went on to go do yeah, those. I haven't, I haven't seen either film. of those as well. To be honest, I, I wasn't really familiar with them until, you know, uh, looking into this film brought them to my attention. Arguably, Baraka is the best yeah. one out of all of these. Because uh, for starters, it's worldwide. Uh, we haven't mentioned that Koyana Scotsi takes place solely in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's domestic. And that's cool. But when Baraka blows the doors off and starts shooting, I think it's around 20 different countries on five different countries. I, I think the cover said like years. 28 or 27 or something like that. It's fucking bananas. You're yeah. in the Amazon. You're over in India. You're going to all these different tribes. Um, visiting different cultures, you're in cities. It's doing to what this is doing on a greater effect. I will also add that Baraka and Samsara are filmed in 70 millimeter, where this was shot in 35 because the technology just didn't exist back then to travel that size camera around a country to go to these remote locations. Uh, But Fricky actually built his own camera um, for Panavision <laughs> uh, so that he can get 70 millimeter format um, and get more information. So uh, that also means that there is some beautiful 4K um, uh, copies of Baraka and Samsara because they were able to take that original print, the 70 millimeter print with all that information and get it to a, um, you know, uh, ultra high def or 4K uh, quality. So, um, yeah. yeah, if you have if you ha- ever have a chance to watch a 4K version of Baraka, do it. It is so fucking cool to watch. Nice, nice. Definitely going to be checking that one out, man. And then, yeah, our next sequence uh, contains what I arguably would say is the most powerful shot in the film. And and the fact that it, uh, I think, is represented on the cover would lead me to believe that other people probably feel similarly. But this is where we uh, (laughs) start to see the, the skyscrapers. And at first, you know, we see like these very sort of pristine glass skyscrapers with this almost like angular geometric architecture that suggests it's almost like alien, right? It feels like something out of like Blade Runner. And I think that's the point because the music even kind of shifts into this very sci-fi sort of aesthetic. Um, And from there, we've got like a bunch of crowds that are sort of moving in fast motion. And then we he sort of... uh, contrasts that with some shots of some individuals as well and then when we do see those skyscrapers at night i don't know if you have any insight by the way ryan into how they achieved that look if that was like a lack of color correction or lighting in a certain way but they get this very distinct green quality out of the neon lights that are in these skyscrapers well they're not neon lights; they're just i guess probably fluorescent lights or something and the way that the the things light up it almost looks like a almost like a digital readout of like an audio wave or like some sort of like a series of like digital, you know, battery pack readouts or something like it's, it's such a trip the way that a lot of these, you know, something like a building where you get up close and it's this huge ginormous monolith, you know, and you look up and it's just, it's all encompassing. And, but you know, you, you take that camera far back enough and you shrink that thing down and it looks like uh, something that you play with in your hand and it and you see the resemblance to these other these other objects entities etc that exist right and i think that's 
sort of playing to the same degree what we saw earlier where I was talking about how when you speed up a lot of those natural systems, right, like the clouds, right, um, you know, you yeah. take a different perspective and all of a sudden you see its resemblance to something else. And I think they were very much trying to do the same thing with these skyscrapers. Dude, I dug so hard to try to find something from Fricky talking about what he was doing here and how he was doing it, the lenses he was using, because obviously this is all cinematography based, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there, he's doing a lot of stuff with cameras and he's inventing a lot of stuff with cameras. He's using old techniques and new ways. We'll say that. Um, okay. Like uh, time lapse, for example, or hyper motion lapse, hyper lapse, um, moving things very fast with a... Uh, you know, faster frame rate or slower frame rate, changing things like that. These guys. So we have done a great deal on this show talking about the influence of cocaine in Hollywood um, <laughs> and how <laughs> that's always our go-to, right? Like hey, these guys got into a uh, boardroom and just did a bunch of blow. And they were like, Hey, you know what I think would be a cool idea. Yeah, I'm like when we're doing you. our batshit crazy genre films, for sure. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I think it would be really easy for me to say it was 1975, and that's what was going on with these cats. These are not those cats. No, um, I get the exact opposite impression with these guys. These guys are mechanical engineers. These guys are mad scientists. These guys have not done a drug in their life. I yeah. would be shocked if they've had a drop of alcohol. I know Godfrey Reggio, for one, uh, was in a very, very, very select hierarchy of the Catholic Church, training to be a monk or a friar. Oh, wow. Um, and from the age of 14 to 28. He wow. spent 14 Dude, that's years invested in um, large stints of total silence, stoic silence and prayer. I mean, this is like trademark monk shit. And he did it in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, of all places. So, wow. um, you know, this thing came down from an Irish diocese and like branched out. And there was like one little tiny branch in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I believe. And, and he uh, got involved with that for 14 years. Didn't talk to many people. Um, yeah, these guys are nerds in the <laughs> best way possible. And then, like I said, they're so they're taking these old... Uh, things that were used in very small part in other films and and uh, just leveraging them full full throttle. Uh, I'll also add very quickly, um, if you ever have a chance, uh, Jason, take a minute tonight when we get off the phone uh, to go back and, and research and look up Ron Fricky's ACLU uh, TV campaign or ad campaign that he did right before this film that led to him doing this film and meeting up with Ron Fricky. Okay. Um, crazy trippy shit. Wow. Crazy trippy shit. The whole thing is an information ad campaign on, uh, society being controlled and manipulated by technology. So it has everything to do with what we're talking about here. Yeah. Right? And, um, but it has, but it's got like uh, a body with a TV head, but the TV head has someone in the TV, like on the TV talking with like static on, like it's like max headroom shit from, wow. but we're going way back to like 72 where this stuff is horrifying and nobody wanted it anywhere. Like he did this apparently, uh, and, and, uh, was trying to get this big ad campaign out there. And everyone's like, that's scary as shit. We're not putting that anywhere. <laughs> you know, we're trying <laughs> so to make like, okay. money here, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And you know that you Something want your little documentaries this. wouldn't know about, sir. Also, you want me to show the, the dangers of technology, 
uh, and do an ad campaign. Where do you think this is going to air on the fucking technology <laughs> that you're telling people to turn? Like, yeah. very, very counterintuitive. Not cool, bro. <laughs> so, uh, but go check it out if you have a chance. Really, really avant-garde, uh, crazy, weird shit. True. It's kind of like when Sideshow Bob uh, made note of the fact that he recognized the irony of appearing on air in order to decry television. As we all right. remember. Simpsons did it. Love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, by the way, dude, the one shot that I was talking about is that sort of like close up of the moon disappearing behind the building. Yes. Like, right. oh, man. And it is, it. And it's so interesting, too, because to me, it was the, it's the it sort of gives you the same feeling as like the end of 2001. Right. And it's hard to say. I don't know if there's something where. Just the majesty of something as enormous as a planet, you know, it's just it gives you that sort of small and significant feeling or whatever. But just the way that that particular image of the moon rising up in super close up, by the way, which you realize, yes. like any if you if you stop to think about it, anytime you take a picture of the moon, like the mind's eye is always much, much larger than the, the image. Right. Like in your yeah. in your mind, it's like, wow, Very the moon fantastical. is huge. And then you look at your picture and it's like, why is there a tiny dot? Uh, of light here right <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. land the same in this shot like the the enormity of the moon is very noticeable and it's very clear in its in its in its uh, hyperlapse and it, there's just such power behind that shot and i still don't I, I can't really explain it but you you know it's yeah, there. so trippy because like the scale of the moon to that skyscraper yeah. is so dynamic it makes the moon you're, you're absolutely right it makes it look very um uh, otherworldly or fantastical or yeah. something from a cartoon or, or a comic book or something where you see someone oftentimes you'll see the, the stereotypical silhouette of like, of like what your antagonist or protagonist against the moon. And sure. they're like one third of the moon, you know, or whatever. It's yeah. like, that's not how the moon works. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in this particular case, that is how the moon works. I um, will talk about this a little bit. I've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, this is Godfrey's, Attempt at showcasing our transition of using technology as our new host of sorts and, and transitioning from nature into technology and how sometimes those two will meet harmoniously. Examples of that being the dam, uh, the Hoover Dam, harnessing nature to where we get our electricity and uh, and how that exists nestled in the nature holding back water amongst the mountains and all this beautiful majesty. And you've got all of a sudden just a million tons of fucking concrete there. Boom. You know, yeah. man-made. and, uh, and this is another one of those, uh, beautiful images. I think where, uh, you get this wonderful skyscraper, um, man-made, you know, structure, uh, organized rows of lights, you know, all very, um, uh, symmetrical. And then you've got the moon, which is, I mean, nothing more, more fantastical of nature. I mean, uh, you know, religions have been based around this and, and you talk about, uh, you know, uh, what phases the moon or is in to control your, uh, moods or different sequences and so forth. So, uh, here we are with the moon plastered right next to, and, and going into traveling hyperlapse style into this, and dissolving into this wonderful skyscraper at night, which I thought was really a cool way to showcase the point he was trying to make. 100%. Totally agree, man. And then after that, we basically introduced bustles of people that are moving through a crowded New York street, across bridges, through turnstiles, etc. We're seeing car traffic move in fits in what very much looks to be New York with its grid-based streets. 
And from there, we're also looking at, you know, factories and assembly lines, uh, you know, different people that are preparing food and automobiles primarily. That's interspersed with stacks of money being printed from a machine. Pretty obvious there. Uh, we also get from there, like, uh, we get shots of, like, sort of first-person shots driving through a highway, which actually the the sort of labyrinthine highway complex very much reminded me of the ones from Tokyo that we saw in Solaris back in season one. thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we've got some sort of hypercuts of ads featuring, like, commercialism, a little bit of sex and violence. And then we've also got this very sort of cool-looking hyperspeed drive through the sort of neon-soaked streets at night. Uh, again, kind of reminded me of a little bit of 2001 as well. But the one thing that I will say, Ryan, is that um, the the movie lost me for about 10 to 15 minutes, and it was this section right here. And I can't really... I, I just feel like at this point, it maybe they, they, they sort of, this would maybe be where Reggio could have stepped in and helped a little bit more, is I felt like it, I didn't really understand or pick up on the specific messaging the way that I did earlier. I felt like a lot of the previous sequences were sort of very cohesive, and it's like, you know, these five minutes, I'm saying this, these seven minutes, we're saying this, blah, blah, blah. This just felt a little bit more like the way that some people might criticize a film like this without understanding it, where it's just more of like a collection of images. And that's kind of sure. where I felt like this this sort of 10 minutes or so. Again, it, it almost felt like filler a little bit. Did you feel the same and way? Or? That's a fair criticism. I will say that's, again, uh, without you know going too deep into it again, because uh, I've already kind of made my point. But I think that's where movies like Baraka and Samsara can excel, because uh, they can uh, branch out into a more diverse palette of things that they're showing you. Whereas this can get a little monotonous. It's like, we get the streets, we get the lights. Um, they're beautiful images. And I get the point you're trying to say. Um, I think that, uh, it does get pretty cool right after this where, yeah. um, Oh, you get to the uh, circuit boards and how that yep. compares to cityscapes and that gets really pretty. Also the arcade, um, which I think is the transition directly after this, if I'm not mistaken, wherein uh, we go to a, cause we're seeing all the cars go through the roadways and so forth at high speed and time lapse and their headlights are streaming together in one beam of light yeah. uh, as they're kind of coming from point A to point B. Um, so and they're it looks no longer cool. distinguishable as individual cars. Right. But at a certain point, uh, it's uh, like we've uh, we're already about what forty five minutes into this film thirty five minutes mean, dude, into I this think film we're, and we're it does start close to get to a an hour yeah at this point could be because gets monotonous but then it goes right from that if I'm not mistaken into um like uh, uh you know a video game of pole position we'll call it or something you know very yeah so that's eight, where eight bit. Yeah, that's where we sort of get like you're talking about. We, you know, it sort of introduces the sort of video game presentation and then we see the sort of repeating patterns of the different buildings and how, how you know, pulled away they very much sort of look like these like circuits and motherboards. And so, um, you know, once again, just sort of reinforcing that theme, which I think is where this film excels best. And, uh, and then from there, you know, it's also contrasted with uh, we go back to people, you know, and we're seeing people walk through the streets. But now it's sort of like the less glamorous side. Right. So now we're seeing sure. some of the dirty streets. We're seeing sick people. We're seeing homeless people. We're seeing some man-made devastation that's being cleaned up by a fire crew. And, you know, again, I think the. 
I think it is pretty clear, you know, the message sort of overall, just saying that the, you know, the human influence on nature and the world and the sort of disastrous effect that can have. Um, and I think that that statement, which again, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that statement here in just a minute, because I think that uh, this, this final sequence with the Challenger explosion uh, is kind of the film's uh, thesis, you know, final thesis statement, if you will, sort of the like, you know, this is what all of this can lead to, you know, the the ultimate great tragedy, right? The error of our ways. And look what happened. The shuttle blew up. Right. Um, so, you know, so and and look, there's going to be people uh, depending on the age of the per- of whoever's listening to this show. Uh, there are going to be people that know the Challenger explosion. There's going to be some younger people that probably don't. There's going to be some older people that watched the Challenger explosion on television live as it happened. If they're, you know, um, so. But at the end of the day, I haven't I, I had never seen the footage before. I had known the story. And so seeing it firsthand, well, it was really just so we're clear. That wasn't the Challenger explosion. Just no, so we're clear. Yeah. OK, so it's Challenger uh, exploded in 1986. This movie came out in 1982. This predated that by four years, even upon its release. OK, guys. So this is so this is basically just a random shuttle that like the same exact thing happened. It's to. a stage I rocket. Ass- I assumed it was the Challenger because it's the booster the rocket thing is, is uh, disengaging from the space shuttle and falling back to Earth. They they kind of are meant to come apart in pieces it's my understanding before the actual booster rockets fall that, apart in space okay because if that's the case that sort of completely changes what <laughs> completely changes my thesis here so so if so if what you're saying is true that's not the actual like rocket exploding mid-flight that's basically the rocket it could discarding have been, it it could have been um a, a rocket exploding mid-flight and because it does start with that rocket taking off in the yeah. opening sequences and then by the end um you know it could have been a failed attempt uh where the that, rocket is exploding but that's I do what i thought was happening and that's challenger. yeah so that's what i thought was happening and that's why i thought it was the challenger because that's uh, for anybody listening who doesn't know that's exactly what happened there this rocket took off and it looked and then it just exploded like very shortly after um, right. And to me, I mean, I, it, 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 if that's what happened, that fits perfectly with with the film's statement. Right. Because it's like, look, you know, you, the ultimate expression of your technology is being able to travel to space. And, you know, this thing exploded on the way up there. You know, you fit you not only failed in your endeavor, but you killed the people that were in that. And then, you know, like basically, especially up front at the beginning, like he shows us those engines right and we've seen footage of those engines as well those giant fucking jet turbines at the bottom right and how massive they are right just the most enormous thing you could think of like channeling all this fuel and making these giant flames right and it's just so powerful and 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 immersive and massive and then for it to basically you know explode and fail and then it's just reduced to this little tiny piece of flaming metallic rubble and wreckage that's just twisting in free fall back down to earth burning getting smaller and smaller right um and so this giant huge enormous creation uh, all of you know man's efforts and and technology and advancements put into this thing this space shuttle explodes and is reduced to a flaming piece a, fl- a small flaming ball of metal and again okay. that's the criticism right of here. the film saying that so yeah go for it uh, just did a little research on the fly. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
And that uh, that ending sequence is actually of uh, the Atlas uh, uh, rocket launch from 1962, May 8th, 1962, the Atlas oh, wow. Centaur. And um, yes, it was when we were trying to put a man on the moon in the space race, and it was a exploded, failed trial as it went up into the sky. So it does fit with your narrative. Yeah. Um, just a little bit before you thought it did. Yes. Um, in fact, w- one might argue it fits even more with your narrative because it was when uh, it was the first time man was reaching for the stars. And uh, much like Icarus, we got a little too close to the sun, if you will. And uh, yeah. yeah, so the well, atlas and, exploded. And so that's what I want to say. So so thank you for looking that up, because like I said, it, that that definitely fits with the film's overall theme. Like, so. Yes. Um, so I'm glad that that ended up being the case. But I want to examine that statement that the film makes by showing us this atlas because again it's it's showing us as this example of us you know quote unquote living life out of balance right but one of the things you brought up at the very beginning of the show was the force of nature right and how in order to have these magnificent mountains and rivers and seascapes and blah 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 there was a very violent birth that nature and land and sea and and all of that had to engage in right um and so my question to you Ryan is how is it that that how like why can't we just chalk up this atlas to Again, the violent nature of creation, right? Like discovering something new, creating something new that's going to alter the landscape, right? Whether physically or metaphorically, that's ugly and it's violent and bad things happen during that. And there are casualties, but isn't it, couldn't it be argued that those, those things are, are necessary for creation to take place and from there couldn't you say that this is the the atlas explosion the challenger explosion are just the the natural and natural reaction to the inherently messy nature of creation and advancement what would you say to that i would agree fully um i think this is a beauty of the beast so to speak yeah wherein um you know, it, it, are they showing, you know, beastly things or a um, a virus style takeover of humanity in a lot of ways? Yes. Um, but what has it led to? What are the advancements? How many people have we helped? You know, what do we get in return for those things? And I think it does a tremendous job of showing uh, many examples, like I said earlier, of how we work uh, in harmony with nature, not against it. Um, and so I think that that's when man is at its best, right? Uh, humanity is at its, at its best when we are able to respect what was there prior and work within those confines to better the whole thing and get something out of it or harness that thing. I mean, even the airplane sequences, us harm- harnessing nature, uh, and fighting against gravity to be able to travel farther and, uh, broaden our horizons. Right. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I see what you're hold- saying, but I, I don't know that I did. I don't know that I agree that the film is saying that. Um, I, I think that I think that the film I don't think that the film necessarily presents man engaging in harmony with technology or nature engaging in harmony with technology. You know, I think that like the sequence you're talking about, like we see a lot of like missiles being launched into the desert and there's the explosions and like we just right. watched all these very sort of serene mountains and desert dunes and this and that. And all of a sudden you bring humans into that same environment and it's death and explosions and black smoke. 
It's um, all of it. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's that the you know, the and film... nature has volcanoes and earthquakes and and hurricanes and traumatically violent things that yeah hurt itself, and we can are capable of those things too. And I think that was Reggio's message. I think really? that he was trying to showcase and demonstrate the whole stratus the whole gambit uh gamut of of what is capable the pendulum swing of of working within and and destruction and working without and using those technologies in violent ways so you've got the dam that provides power and works within you've got the plane that does no damage and you know i mean obviously pollution and stuff but we didn't care about that in 82 and uh <laughs> but then you've got the missiles and the rocket testing and the violence and the tanks um, you've got, uh, and then you've got the mundane, which is the hot dog scene or the Twinkie scene, which is, um, and people working on factory lines and people, and even the traffic, um, you know, zipping to and fro to what end, you know what I mean? Like the cars going to and from work, what a mundane thing to when showcasing all the beauty and, and majesty of nature. And this is what we've harnessed ourselves and chained ourselves to is this daily, grind the nine to five and then you showcase that and polarize it later with sad faces and destitute humans just milling about through these uh dirty cities and landscapes just going to work and going to these factory lines to make what to do what to make twinkies and baloney like you know so <laughs> yeah I think there's a the, it's kind of a mixed message but i do think he's uh in a lot of ways trying to show the whole gamut of the wonder of humanity and the evils of humanity and how yeah. these things can be beautiful at times and horrible at times, uh, just as nature can be violent and beautiful. And, you know, yeah. uh, you got to take the good with the bad with both. And it's just the the whole experience. Um, I agree with know, that statement, though. But again, like, I, okay. I, if I'm being honest, I don't think the film makes that statement. I think that's, you know, something that we would think about the film and we could bring that. But it, any every statement I think the film makes, I think, is very critical about man's influence on nature. I don't think it's really showing respect for the harmony of technology or like we said, you know, the way that you and I would look at this Atlas explosion as, you know, just a step in the direction of advancement and achievement. I think the film is trying to admonish us for that. I think the film is saying, look what you did with this Atlas uh, thing, you know, like this is this is demonstrating that you guys are living wrong. And that's only reinforced by the messaging at the end, because, uh, you know, there's basically one last shot of the scene at the end, sort of bringing us back full circle, like you said at the beginning to that cave face. And then after that, the text that we're left with is the definition of the of the word Koyaanisqatsi, which is defined five different ways in the film as either crazy life. Life in turmoil, life out of balance, life disintegrating, or a state of life that calls for another way of living. All of those are critical. All of those are critical statements. All of those, none of those could be, could have any sort of positive energy associated with them, right? And there are three Hopi prophecy translations that the film provides us that Philip Glass used for the Native American throat singing vocals. And those three statements amount to the following. If we dig precious things from the land, we will invite disaster, negative, near the day of purification. There will be cobwebs spun back and forth across the sky. I think negative. That just sounds like some cold-blooded shit a supervillain would say, <laughs> to be completely honest, before yes. they zap the death ray. 
Uh, and then from there, a container of ashes might one day be thrown from the sky, which could burn the lands and boil the oceans. So literally all of that is very critical language. None of that, I think, shows the other side of it. And that's why I don't think the film intended or if it did show us that it was only to set up the commentary that would come later. Uh, but I think it's strictly admonishing humanity and technology for its effect on nature. That's the message that I received. Not that I agree and, with it, but that's the message that I believe the film is saying. No, no, no. I I would actually go. I'll I'll go with that to an extent. Um, I, I do know because I watched the the documentary with Reggio, and I, I heard it. You know, his take on it was that he wanted to leave it up to the viewer. This was kind of one of those yeah. things where he didn't want this to be. This was not meant to ever be an inconvenient truth. Uh, 1.0. This was yeah. never meant to warn humans about the dangers of progress. Again, uh, it's important to note 1982, man, people weren't really thinking that way. We weren't even to the hole in the ozone layer because of hairspray back then. I don't know if you remember that, Debob. Oh, sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Aerosol cans, Aquanet, baby. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, uh, but, but I will say that um, hearing of Reggio's grounded past in the friardom of uh, the diocese of, you know, this uh, basically spending his life in solitude and silence away from technology. I could only imagine his reemergence back into it at, at 28 years old when he was, you know, coming up with, and then also seeing his, uh, you know, ACLU uh, series just right before this, that this was kind of based on warning about the dangers uh, uh, of technology and loss of identity, which by the way, pairs really well with perfect blue uh, and what was going on sure. with that film and some of the messages that that was uh, bringing us just a couple films back uh, in season two for us. So um, yeah, uh, I don't think that he was necessarily beating us on the head with it. There was a lot of, I agree with that. Here. Um, one thing I will say a uh, problem uh, because this, you know, history has been very kind to this film. A lot of people love this historically. It's sitting at a 90% Rotten Tomato meter. Uh, but someone who was not very kind to this film when it first came out is Roger Ebert. Interesting. Um, and he thought this film failed because if it uh, because he agreed with you uh, directly. But he said that the film failed because if that was its message was to show the ugliness of of or or violence or dangers if you will of progress and technology and the and the harmony of nature and how we need to be working with nature instead of against it and this is how bad it can get he said they did a pretty bad job of it because they made all the uh technology stuff look so beautiful so yeah. he said that they made the technology stuff look so enticing and so warm it was when the humans were the happiest so when we see anytime we see humans outside um, they're usually traveling to work. They're usually, um, you know, homeless or on the streets or dirty or kind of with a sad look on their face. Um, the times we see them the happiest are when they're in the mall or when they're in the casino. Those uh, that brought bright, vividly orange shot, which I thought was gorgeous because up till then everything was very desaturated or lowly. Very, very um, unsaturated to an sure. extent. But then we go to this casino shot and it's all orange and the women are wearing orange with like cowboy hats. All yeah. very, very, very retro 70s. And it just like pops you in the face like, holy shit. And then we're in this like <laughs> old mall and this old arcade, um, all very neon synth wave, you know, very retro 80s look. 
and the people are happy and they're all laughing and they're like playing video games and staring at their screens. So mixed message. I get it, man. I'm with you on that. I don't know what it was trying to say or if it was trying to say anything or just present all evidence and let the jury, uh, you know, defer amongst themselves and come back with a verdict (laughs) as jury being us, you know? So maybe what you got out of it isn't what other people got out of it. I would tend to agree with you. Um, and I would tend to agree with Roger Ebert. Yeah. And that's, and that's the beauty about these types of films. And honestly, they're they're exactly the type of films that I love having on this show. Right. Because it does lend itself to discussion. It does lend itself to debate, you know, as opposed to, you know, like when we do a seeking a friend for the end of the world where it's like, well, that's the movie and it's a crowd pleaser, three stars in now. Here we go. I know you liked it more than I did, but there's just not really a lot to like (laughs) sink your teeth into on a film like that. Right. Whereas, you know, we get some of these more obscure films, a Koyana Scotsy and Under the Skin, Uh, you know, it leaves a lot more room for interpretation and discussion and you know, what do you think versus what do I think? And then, of course, you know, the filmmakers are more than happy to leave it in our plates. Right. Because, you know, sure. if they tell you what they intended, then we don't get to have this discussion. And, you know, look at all the these wonderful conversations that happened. It makes your film relevant. It gives it lasting power. Right. Gives you another reason to watch it again. Um, I mean, these are the films that reward multiple viewings, you know, and and, and I sure. just really like the fact that, again, you know, just like just like we said at the top of the show, like what is that illustration at the cave on the cave, the opening shot of there's no right or wrong answer. Right. I mean, the the, you know, ancient peoples that drew it had something in mind, but none of us can really truly know what that is, what that is here and now. And so as a result, it's just open to interpretation and there's no right or wrong answers. Well, it's just how do you perceive it? Not till Lord Zenu comes back and tells us that's the <laughs> and prophecy. That's a, and that's another interesting <laughs> thing about that is, um, you know, I mean, even just taking another step back is the nature of what we bring to the table in these perceptions, right? Because all of these interpretations tend to be filtered through our base realities of what we understand of the world, you know? And so sure. if we think the world operates one way, you know, we may... That, you know, just by virtue of the fact that we can't look at it otherwise, that's going to influence the way that we interpret this obscure, enigmatic film, right? Whereas someone else is going to bring their own interpretations, biases, you know, knowledge of how they think the world operates. And that's going to inform the way they interpret some of those sequences. Let's talk about that for a brief second, because I wanted to ask you, this is something that I have in my notes that I wanted to ask you about um, uh, twofold. Number one, um how do you think the view of this film, the, the viewing of this film is different now than it would have been in 1982? Because back then we didn't have a lot of, I mean, I'm sure they existed. We had the, 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 the native American with the single tear as he's watching the litter on the road, you know, the, 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 the trademark PSA. And he wasn't even a native American. We had yeah. a white guy and like put black face. So, uh, yeah, terrible. But, um, you know, but so you had a little bit of that, but I don't sure. think it was to the extent, especially in 1975 when he set out and embarked to make this film. So how do you think our, so I think that what we're saying now about this uh, film, I think uh, comes very easily. It's right off the dome. Like, yeah, he's trying to showcase the evils of all this stuff, but sure, I okay. don't necessarily know if that was, do you think our point of view has changed um, because of, uh, you know, we, we now see the ugliness of where this could go. The, the pendulum has swung way far in the other direction and, and climate is changing and uh, polar bears are dying and all this stuff. Right. But also um, follow up. How do you, did you get any vibes from this? Because we have been in a pandemic and quarantined 
and forced uh, to be married to our technology even more so and gone deeper down that rabbit hole? Have you gotten, did you get anything from that or uh, versus the the nature uh, shots and, and, and all of that? Was any of that impactful on you at all or did you take anything away from that? Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing, man. I think that, I think that to answer your question, like, yeah, it's, it's obviously going to be easier for us to make those connections because we are so inundated with technology today, much more so than when the film came out. I think that, I think that it's the natural progression of what people like Reggio and others were trying to say at the time. Like they were trying to warn of the dangers of technology and it proves true, right? Here we are. Like everything they said, like, Hey, look out. Cause this and that's going to happen. It's like, yes, that proves true. Here's the interesting thing though. And this is what I always come back to is that what amazes me constantly. And you see it so often. You see it in technology. You see it in politics. Basically any aspect of modern day society is that humanity has this like brilliant and I don't necessarily use the word brilliant as a compliment, but it's pretty profound. This brilliant ability to chastise and criticize concepts while inhabiting them and actively executing them and putting them and making them a reality. Right? So my point is everybody's sitting here bitching about the evils of technology while they're scanning their phone. Is scanning Twitter, looking at TikTok, checking out this, right? right. Uh, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, all this short form content is rotting our brains to the fact that, like, if we don't look out, like, no one's going to read anymore. And then, like, nobody fucking reads, right? Like, and it's so, like all these things, like, you know, and they're posting those critiques on Twitter in like 140 characters or less. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, and it's, so it's, it's like, like, that's like, the short form content. dickhead. <laughs> and it's because we're lazy. Look, we are. We're a lazy people. I'm a lazy person. You're a lazy person. None of us want to do work that we don't have to. And unfortunately, you know, there's just a lot of people where re- I mean, reading takes more effort than watching a movie and watching a movie with, you know, a full on narrative and three act structure. And it's a two hour commitment that takes way more time than just watching a series of fucking 30 to 90 second videos on TikTok, you know. So you take like all of our sort of, you know, we're commitment phobic, right? Like humans hate making commitments because commitments is work. And, you know, something like a movie that once was just an enjoyable diversion is now like homework that I have to sit there and commit two hours like and and again so it's like you know we, we sit here and talk about how uh, you know we, we we value entertainment more than teachers and yet you know we do nothing on either side of it like and here's the thing I don't even necessarily if you agree with these statements or not it's just don't don't criticize something that you can actively change and not change it You know, it's just reflective of that whole like someone else will take care of it mentality that like so many of us have in life and society. Right. And 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 I'm just as guilty of it as anyone else. Right. There are certainly certain things around like my neighborhood, for example, that I would love to see change, but I'm not doing shit about it. And I absolutely should. Right. Um, but I do at least try to, to do those things, you know, artistically. And I do try to read and, you know, part of this, that's one of the reasons that like we even started this show that looks at fucking movies that like you people listening have never heard of to a large degree, right? Like these are wonderful pieces of work, man. Like people spent years, they put their entire entity, their entire being into writing and performing and 
millions of dollars were spent bringing these things to life, you know, and it's so easy for us to just overlook all of this, you know, and we sit here and we acknowledge that we admonish ourselves for not paying attention to the little guy for not going and challenging ourselves with these unique works. But we don't turn around and then do it. We don't turn around and go check them out, you know, and that's to me, I think. So, you know, when you talk about like, you know, what did, what did this film achieve? Like, yeah, I think the film recognized early on that there were going to be dangers associated with technology. They saw it. They experienced it to a limited degree in a very sort of speculative fiction way. They inhabited, they, you know, looked ahead and used their imagination to see, you know, where does this take us 10, 15, 20, 30 years out? And it proved true. So, so yeah, so I think that I think that there's definitely validity to that, but at the same time, I think there's so much about the 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 modern society that we we could change but it would take a very active approach and it would take some degree of work on our end it would take not just taking advantage of you know dicking around all the time on our phones like actually putting that time to good use like yeah who doesn't want to just lay around and absentmindedly scroll their phone for 10 minutes instead of like picking up a book or writing an essay or doing whatever right but all of those things are what drive the world forward. And so I know that was a long rambling reaction to your question, but so it is. No, I mean that you got me there. I, uh, it was something I was thinking of just again, uh, against the backdrop of this pandemic, because a couple of things are happening right now in generationally. Uh, number one, this is, you know, we're coming into our first and or even second generation that has, solely existed under the guise of uh, uh, under the ownership of social media and cell phones and smartphones and and all these things, you know, uh, kids these days uh, don't (laughs) remember a time without smartphones Uh, to you and I. It wasn't that long ago. And, and, you know, we were raised in a time with pay phones and, and, uh, you know, I was raised raised very free range, if you will, where I was let to roam about in a small town, mountain town. Uh, riding bikes and doing the whole stranger things deal. Um, I feel like we're getting to a point now, something I'm noticing as a cultural trend is that it wasn't too long ago, smartphones, the internet, social media, technology, Zoom, these were all our mistress of sorts, culturally speaking. Um, But we existed amongst the real world and nature and saw went out and saw the world on a daily basis and traversed. And now, especially uh, because of the pandemic um, and quarantines, uh, we are forced inside and we, our social lives exist on online almost solely and uh, on social media. And and we exist on zoom calls and zoom meetings and this and that. And so what's quickly becoming our mistress and this sexy, exciting, enticing side piece is nature and going out to see things. And what I'm noticing more and more uh, of my friends doing is ticking off national parks and things that, uh, you know, going on road trips and just getting the fuck out of uh, Dodge for a minute and getting outside and seeing nature. And I think that I'm hoping that um, as this generation grows up married and chained to technology and it's such a part of their daily grind Uh, to get jobs done. Yes, it adds convenience. It allows you to get things done much faster. I don't have to drive across town to run paperwork or anything. I mean, there's so many things that I used to have to do, you know, Google Maps exists or whatever, you know, Apple Maps. 
um, music for fuck's sake. You know, it's all every song ever written is all at my fingertips for $10 a month. Um, but uh, what's not at my fingertips for $10 a month is, you know, waterfalls and driving through, uh, you know, the, the Blue Ridge Parkway up in North Carolina and going getting a cabin in Asheville. I'm seeing that treasured more and more as it's becoming stripped away from our uh, daily grasp and not totally. really a part of it. Families aren't taking that family vacation anymore. That quintessential Chevy Chase National Lampoons get in the station wagon and let's go places. And I think that the the pendulum is kind of starting to swing the other way and people are starting to appreciate that more. And people more, for fuck's sake, yeah. man. Just like getting a hug, you know? <laughs> seeing somebody <laughs> face to fucking face, you know, is like so treasured. I mean, even just recording this podcast, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Jason lives in Los Angeles. I live in Yo. Florida. Um, it's not like we're sitting in a studio, like coffee talk. you know, doing this thing. <laughs> yeah. This is so, how we connect, uh, man. And by the way, I, I do right. love the metaphor that you went with in terms of the mistress, because I, I do agree with you. And I think that what happened is I think that, you know, in keeping with that metaphor, like, 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 like the earth land outside, all that stuff, right? That's, that's your wife. Okay. And then here comes technology and it's this mistress and it's fucking sexy, dude. Like damn technology is looking hot. And if I could just get a piece of that, right? So then you start talking with technology and like technology's talking back and you're giving each other some looks and feels, you know, and you resist, you resist, you resist. And then you do it, man. You take that plunge. You're like, you know what, man, yeah. I just, I can't help it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm leaving the wife and, and I'm going with the mistress. Right. And so, you know, you move on to what you think is a bigger and better thing and then you guys live together and you realize holy shit this this person is vapid uh they have nothing to bring to the table they're shallow like i was just attracted to them physically like we're not the same like this is a very unrewarding relationship now right and you're sitting there and you're feeling sorry for yourself and all of a sudden you start thinking back to your good old wife and man you're really starting to miss her you start remembering the good times you went on that trip to cabo together you went and saw that uh that movie boy that sure was nice i wonder if she would just maybe i could just call her back up and maybe she just even i mean you know we're not gonna sleep together or anything but maybe we just go to dinner right or just grab a grab a coffee together it'd be great to see see them again you know i think that's exactly what's happened and and to your point that's what we're seeing happen your friends and neighbors, 1998, <laughs> season one. Season one. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plugs. But with nature, though, yeah. I mean, uh, you can't turn a hoe into a housewife. And uh, in this particular case, the internet and technology is our hoe that we're trying to essentially trying to make into our housewife and it's just not working absolutely by the way everybody thank you very much for listening to us on your devices and streaming platforms we very much appreciate that and thank you technology for allowing us to have this show uh negating what i just said to a large degree i mean (laughs) positives but that's the thing yeah it's uh it's it's yin and yang you know like there's there's good and bad for everything and and look i think to a degree i just think it's i i think anytime it's the whole concept of like diversify your assets right anytime you'd put all of your energies all of your resources all of your finance all of your anything into one thing it's too much of that thing and it's going to work against you uh it's really about balance right even back to what is koyo Scotsi, life out of balance it's not saying you can't have this thing or these things right but it's requiring right. just that balance and that's what we're so bad at as humans right so it's so easy for us to go to one extreme or another whether it's you know political opinions whether it's 
uh, our vices, you know, I mean, it's just so, so easy. And what's elusive and difficult is balance, making sure I do a little bit of everything along the way and don't stray too much into one thing or another. Um, well, and- look, I mean, you know, technology started, it's innovation, right? We're, we were trying to use our brains are our, our human brains to solve problems so you're out in nature you're getting disease you've got to purify the water you know candle lighting the wheel fire stay warm skinning animals to create pelts to make clothes all this shit is just innovation that we've progressed along the way disney's got like an entire ride uh, dedicated to it it's called the wheel of progress and then they put it in the epcot ball and that talks about the same type shit <laughs> um yeah so it's just how far do you want to push that you know pendulum swing and when does it become evil and when is it being misused and how do we harness these uh great innovations uh, for good or bad or um, you know, in some cases, harmoniously somewhere in between. And I think that, yeah, uh, maybe that wasn't the film's initial message, but I do think that message is in there. I think that that's what I took from it. And here we are in the year of our Lord, 2022 and not in 1982, uh, you know, 30 years have passed and, and, uh, 40 years have passed, 40 years, fuck me, 40 years have passed. So 40 <laughs> years have passed. Um, <laughs> sorry, everybody that's <laughs> out there listening. Uh, but yeah, 40 years have passed and, uh, man, I forgot where I was going with that. Cause now I'm just depressed. <laughs> Queen of the Scotsy, 1982. Well, yeah, there you go. And, uh, you know, we basically yeah. end the film as we kind of began it where we return back to, it's not the same cliff face, but it's a very similar looking one with also, you know, similar imagery being illustrated on there. And, you know, we bring back, Philip Glass brings back the Koyana Scotsy chat that we had at the beginning. So yeah, you know, very much circle of life here, you know, uh, ending where we begin and uh, which, you know, very much fits in with uh, the sort of theme of the film overall. So that is Koyana Scotsy. And uh, Ryan, hey. <laughs> we're going to go ahead. And as we do, uh, we're going to do three adjectives. Uh, but I think that you're going to be happy that uh, for, for old Jason's, he's bringing back Metaphor Edition. So, uh, yeah, I love Metaphor Edition. <laughs> Had some fun with that uh, several episodes ago. Going to bring that one back. But before we get into that, Ryan, just go ahead and give us your three adjectives. Well, fuck me. I'm just going to blow right through mine. Mine are pretty <laughs> standard. Uh, peaceful. Um, I'm going to chalk that up to Philip Glass. That guy's that guy slaps. Um, <laughs> you know, he took a lot of this and made sense of it. I think that uh, any one of these dudes, Reggio or Fricky uh, or Glass, would all agree Yay! that without the score, <laughs> without the score, uh, hoopla. Uh, that's what reminds <laughs> you of some SpongeBob. Um, without the score, this film, you know, wouldn't stand on its own two feet. That guy just made this such a smooth smooth bowl of ice cream uh and then revolutionary again i can't stress this enough this was started in 75 um we've seen a lot of films like this uh there's a a film that just came out like last year called awake or awaken awake something like that. i think it's awake. By, uh, tom lowe um sure. and it's that guy is the next generate it's actually produced by godfrey reggio of all things oh, wow. and so he's involved in that in that stew um, but yeah, he's the new master of time lapse and hyperlapse. Looks fucking sick. Uh, need to see it. It's on Amazon Prime. 
Um, but yeah, this for its time, revolutionary as fuck, and nobody had seen anything like this. That's one. If you go back and look at original reviews, one person after the next said they, they had never seen anything like this before, and that's why Coppola slapped his name on it because he's like, dude, this blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, and last, Artie. This is not. Uh, this is yet another film that is not for everybody, and I would not recommend to anyone. But if this is your film, then this is your film. But I will also say, um, watch Baraka. Like that's just the yeah. superior. Like this is the OG gangster of these kinds of movies, and we do a great job of trying to connect with where things start and to get back to the unpopular version of things. Like we watched the brood by Cronenberg a few movies ago. Um, that's not his sexiest film. We know that the fly is his sexiest film. It fucking holds up. We Hell love yeah, that dude. movie. Um, we're not here to talk about why this film is better than that film and so on. We're trying to get to the heart of the matter and see where does this shit come from? Like trace it back. You know, what, what were these people doing back in the day before all that? We mm-hmm. watched Steven Spielberg's duel. Uh, so this is that, this is the pre Baraka Baraka, but go watch Baraka or Samsara. <laughs> Both those movies fuck. So, uh, anyway, Jason, what about you, buddy? Let's get into your metaphors. All right. All right. Three adjectives, metaphor edition coming back at you here. So first one. <clears throat> all right, Ryan, if I was to tell you that my first metaphor, uh, could be described as the quote drink of choice. At an early 2000s hip-hop club, what would I be talking about? Drink of choice at an early 2000s hip-hop club. Ooh. Um... I mean, my my instinct would be to go to, uh... Some Hennessy or some yak or maybe some gin and juice, but none of that really works as a descriptor. But you're all you're you're it's, you're in the right lines, buddy. What's one of those that could work. also work as a descriptor? It doesn't work as a descriptor. Uh, um, if I if I told you that uh, if I told you that this particular drink uh, tended to not leave you blue, would that lead you in the right direction? I mean, are we talking vodka Red Bull? We are topping hypnotic, sir. This is a hypnotic. Oh, hypnotic! Film. Got it. The old Incredible Hulk. <laughs> Drink Got of it. choice at an early two thousands hip hop club. Hypnotic. This is a hypnotic okay. film. Uh, number Love it. number two is going to be a bit of a stretch, which is why I sandwiched it in the middle. We'll see how this goes. You can let me know. Uh, if I told you that this film was could be described as a six month AV department internship. How could you possibly interpret that? Six month AV department internship. Like I said, it's a it's a stretch. So you know, but and I'm supposed to get like a metaphor from this. Yeah, like a word. Yeah, You're going for words. Uh, so this is a, okay. this is a hybrid. This is two words actually. Okay, this is a hyphenate. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, DIY nerds like just like <laughs> so patching yeah, shit I, together like RCA cables to a uh, old <laughs> uh you know pro, my uh tr- projector like an early slide projector one of those film projectors you know that you yeah, yeah, take yeah, your yeah, notes yeah. from and no that's just class. uh that's just uh me saying that this was an audiovisual experience See, oh, okay. Audio visual experience, six month AV internship experience, uh, uh, <laughs> stretching it. Yeah, Got way it. stretching that one. But 
But number three is some fucking money that is going to more than make up for that. So get ready for this one. First of all, one was money too. So one and three money, two, eh, stretch, but still having fun with it here. Number three, if I told you that this film could be described as a fully recovered stunt driver, just a... A stunt driver fully recovered just three weeks after a near-fatal explosion. What would you think of that? A stunt driver fully recovered three weeks after a near-fatal explosion. Um, this was a stunt driver... Quick recovery, a bounce back, dude. Like you're, a you're, you're, you're back clo- in the saddle. I mean, you're close, but does that does that describe the film as well? Um, it's uh, crash and burn and back on the road. It's like, <laughs> like all right, hey, right. I'll tell you this what. This thing I, just like shits out, and then it like takes off, and it's back again. We're back, baby. <laughs> so, Ryan, I'm gonna tell you right now. For me. A stunt driver fully recovered three weeks after a near-fatal explosion. I find that surprisingly moving. Hey! Ladies and gentlemen, this has now become our last episode for the season. We're cutting it. We're wrapping it up. Johnny Carson's got nothing on me! Ah, uh, surprisingly oh, moving. Man. Get it? Get it? He's surprisingly yeah. moving. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm oh, so sorry, man. everybody. Oh, in their cars, yeah, on their way okay. to work. Yeah. All right. I'm waiting for my check. Yeah, from, now you uh, have to go from, to work. <laughs> waiting for my check from, from Hollywood right now. From comedy, actually. Comedy itself is writing me a check for that joke. Yeah, signed comedy. <laughs> Formal star rating, Ryan, what you got? I'm giving this one a B, uh, only because there's better versions of it. Um, you know, if you're going to go watch a film like this, go see Baraka, Samsara, whatevs, Awake. Um, but uh, but it's a solid film, and it's, you know, it holds weight. I loved it. I really enjoyed watching it again. Um, but... If we were all sitting in a room and I was going to show you one of these kinds of films and they're all very similar, I'd go with one of the others I mentioned. How about you, bud? So, Ryan, I've actually never seen any of those films. Uh, This is the only type of film like this that I've seen with, you know, no narrative documentary, aside from the aforementioned Lessons of Darkness and Fata Morgana. But, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. I love music videos as well. I mean, this is an 80-minute music video with a social commentary vibe attached to it. Some really, really powerful images. So, for me, I'm going to go four and a quarter out of five stars for Koyana Scotsy. Um, And, yeah, and that's like uh, I said, I'm sure... And look, that that very well, you know, if we had seen this film when it just came out and didn't have a lot of those techniques that have since been borrowed and served up to us in the form of music videos and commercials and more popular documentaries, etc. I imagine this like hit really, really hard to your point earlier. Uh, I believe you mentioned something. So, yeah. But yeah, but here and now uh, still still a very, very solid film. I would totally watch it again and I would enjoy it. And just again, dude, the Philip Glass score is just it's perfect. I love it so, so much. If this was I, I think more than anything else, if it had a different score, like I may not be as into it as I am, but I just no, I, totally I really agree. loved the marriage of visuals with that score. 
um, wonderful experience. So yeah, four and a quarter from me, a B from Ryan. Anything less than Philip Glass on this film would be like listening to Yakety Sax at Jurassic Park when they're like going through the gate. <laughs> that funny. would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> or just uh, you chased around. <laughs> it'd be awesome. Like, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Newman, you know, with the with the spitting dinosaur, like he gets spit on and yeah. then you just hear Benny Hill music as he goes tumbling out of the trunk or the Jeep. <laughs> 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 Or do I yep. have that song go? Uh, da, 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 I don't know. You know the fucking Benny Hill yep. song. We all know the Benny Hill song. <laughs> Yakety sex. <laughs> you guys can catch us on a few different social medias. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram at Esoterica Cinema. Ryan and I are also available at the Ryan Siebold or Ryan underscore Siebold and Jason Aberrant, respectively. We've also got an email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. You can hit us up there for all things crepe related, or perhaps you'd like to talk to us about muffins from season one. Because we all love muffins, but we all love crepes too. Either way, you we need- all love donuts. Oh, yeah, and donuts. Do you know too. The, lemon, the lemon cream donut? Is that the superior one? I, I, that's what I'm told. Yeah. I, I'm told that lemon, lemon donuts are king. I don't know from who, lemon because I received king. a very mysterious text the other day telling me <laughs> as such, but, uh, I think they might listen to the program either that or it was a very elaborate fishing scheme either way. Uh, yeah. If you don't hear from me in the, by the next episode, assume that I have been taken by this jelly person. Um, also, we have got the website, the wonderful website, esotericacinema.com. We've got some web players on there you can listen to. Uh, you can check out some cool stuff we've done, animatics, learn a little bit more about the show, me and Ryan. And of course, you can download our master list with all of the films, all 200 that we choose from every single week right here at the end of the show. And Ryan, I cannot believe it. I know I said it at the top of the show, penultimate program second to last one just wrapped up one more episode for season two it can't believe we're already it's here, been man. a series of bangers man i really enjoyed Dude. this um oh yeah so much man i was a little like i was kind of getting pissed there towards the beginning of the season when we got like you know tucker and dale and the void and like there was a matinee like it wasn't so great there for a minute but dude i think the second half of the season like, I think the last movie I gave anything less than four stars to was The Brood, which might even be like six or seven episodes ago. Like, this has been banger after banger the last, like, two months. And the guest host, man. I mean, we've yeah, had so Eddie awesome. Axe, We've had Daniel Segura. We've had Cameron, our great friend from uh, the Green Shirt podcast. Yeah. So, uh, you Craig know, and Seamus there from sketches. Repeat Viewing. Like, we did the awesome Dude, Night Court thing. I miss Craig. I I miss those dudes, man. I hope they're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun getting them on. And uh, yeah, to everyone listening, we're going to keep that going, you know? So next, uh, next season, when we come back, um, yeah, you're going to continue to see probably uh, some same, some of the same faces, some of the new ones. Uh, we're also going to be getting out there trying to guest. Uh, we got some things going on there actually right now. So uh, we should, you should hear us guesting on some programs in the next couple months while we're on a break here at Esoterica Cinema. So yeah, man, been loving the guests and everyone's been awesome. All right, man. So I guess uh, with that being said, we should go ahead and uh, get into our uh, next film here then, huh? Our last one. The let's do it. last one, man. All right. Let's hope it's a good one, dude. Uh, yeah. Jason, don't fuck this up, buddy. A lot of pressure. <laughs> don't fuck up the <laughs> random selection process. <laughs> if, it's, if it sucks, pick another number and I'll edit it out. How about that? 
Uh, okay, I mean, we can do that. Well, hey, dude, I mean, last, you know, we tried to cheat the system last season. We tried to, we tried to hand, we hand selected a film that we thought would be a banger to go out on, and it wasn't. It was even, it was even worse than bad because it was mediocre. The three star films are the worst, That's dude. True. The five star films That's are true. great. The one star films, we can tear up. The three, three star films, it's like, eh, it didn't suck enough to hate on, but it wasn't great enough to suck its dick. Like, that sucks. The film in question, everybody, is Willie's Wonderland. <laughs> Which, no joke, our highest rated episode. Go figure. Your Willie is a Wonderland. <laughs> in, so, yeah, in case you were ever wondering what John Mayer sounded like as sung by James Hetfield of Metallica fame, there you go, guys. <laughs> Your body You're is a Wonderland. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's everybody stuck in the 90s. All right, buddy. Let's pick a film here, yeah. <laughs> All righty. So we're getting Quayata Scotsy off the list. We're coming to, for the last time this season, random.org, true random number generator. Use them for all your random number selection needs. Yes, they pay us a fuck ton to say that to you. Their business model is so impressive. They just give you all of this stuff for free, and then they pay us a lot of money to get you to go there. Brilliant. Brilliant capitalism, random.org. So, 1 through 200. Maybe this will be the time that we actually pull a a number that we've pulled already, because I kept saying that you'd think with the random thing here, we'd actually, like, pull the same film once or twice. Uh, But we have got number 153. So if you have our random list, go ahead and find 153, and I'm really hoping it's a good one. Huh, okay, interesting, right? Uh, a lot of films on here that uh, a lot of people haven't seen, and I think this one's actually going to surprise us. I think that maybe more people have seen this than we might have thought. Have you, Ryan, heard of a film called The Keep? I have heard of this film. Okay, the Keep yes. is a horror-ish film, uh, depending on... Yes, and it's, I know this <laughs> film! I know this film! Yes! Oh, and it's yes. by Michael so Mann! Michael film. Mann did a horror, weird, supernatural adventure action thing, and this is that film. To my, I think it's the only time he's touched genre. Outside of maybe like action and crime genre, right? But I don't think, to my knowledge, Michael Mann has done anything close to supernatural horror since. Oh. And not only that, yes. it's based on a book that I just read less than a year ago. It was like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and it was a really good book, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what Michael Mann does. Ryan, you got seeing a the worst for version us? of that book. <laughs> what? If, yeah. This begs the question, what if that book Jason really loved was made for the lowest budget possible of $1,000? Yeah. Um, I By will the way, say just to clarify, stars- before you do give the description, this list made before I read that book. Okay. It, I mean... I didn't actually find... I didn't actually... I found out that the book was an adaptation of the movie after the fact. Like, I didn't know that they were related. I remember this movie coming up in discussion when we were discussing the list. And I remember seeing this trailer and saying, I cannot wait to see that. I hope we pick <laughs> it. And here we are. And all my dreams have just come true. Yeah. Um, At the end of the I season, regret- right when they should, man, is just like, you couldn't write By it the better. Way, I have a strong notion. I'm going to regret this, but yeah, this movie, 
It's like, what if Michael Mann makes Zardoz? Is what <laughs> so the, basically, IMDb gives me one sentence, which is probably all we need. Nazis are forced to turn to a Jewish historian for help in battling the ancient demon they have inadvertently freed from its prison. Yes, sir. Um, I will also add that it stars a the great Scott Glenn, Ian McKellen, and Alberta Watson, uh, and it's written and directed by Michael Mann. Ah, that's going to be so wonderful. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yes. Molisar! Molisar! That'll mean something after you watch the movie. Yeah, I... Um, yeah, I haven't seen Scott Glenn in a film in who a while. Who is Scott Glenn, but, uh, dude? I have no idea who that is. I was going to try to pretend for a minute, but since you brought him back up, I have to let you know that I don't know who that is. Scott Glenn, you're not a Marvel guy, but he played, uh, I think it's called The Stick or something like that in the in the Netflix Daredevil series that was very highly acclaimed. Oh, I saw the first um, two if, seasons of that, actually. Yeah, so he was like the... Good. The, the the sensei Mr. Miyagi guy that was like helping him train to fight oh, okay. the hand or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been in a bazillion things. He was also in Sucker Punch. He was the fuck that movie. like the mystic guy that was like leading the blonde girl around. Um, again, he's one of those recognizable faces. If you pull a picture of him up, you're like, oh, it's that guy. He's in everything, <laughs> and I never knew his name, Scott Glenn. Awesome. Um, and then obviously we know Ian McKellen as. Uh, Yes, yes. Hey, he since then has had one or two high-profile gigs. He's done a couple things. A couple things you might have heard of. Guy is 176 years old. Happy birthday. (laughs) But he moves like he's not a day over 127. (laughs) Um, Yes, I cannot wait to see The Keep next week. Yeah, same. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah, uh, I know that it's out there on the streaming platform, so you guys can find The Keep where you watch your films. Be sure to watch it in advance of our next episode, or don't. Either way, uh, hopefully you enjoy the episodes regardless of whether you've seen them or not. But, uh, yeah, that's what we got on tap for you. So go ahead and check out The Keep, and we will see you next week for our final episode of Season 2 of Esoterica Cinema. Stick around for a fake commercial. Koyana Scotsy Wheels and Mental Health Services. We balance tires, we balance lives. How can I help you? Hi, I was calling about your two-for-one special. Uh-huh. And what exactly does that cover? Well, it's just like it sounds. You, uh, you come in to vulcanize your tires, and we give you a free psychological exam while you wait. Interesting, interesting. So, who administers the exam? Hey, hurry up out there, you jerks! Yeah, uh, depending on when you come in, uh, Jose should be able to take care of you. He's got a quick radiator job before he helps out Mr. Richardson with his crippling anxiety. Uh, But I'm sure we can squeeze you in. And these are licensed professionals? Do you need them to be? Well, of course. Then sure! That doesn't sound very convincing. Listen, lady, the Venn diagram of people that are good at diagnosing vehicular problems alongside mental health disorders is incredibly slim. I make do with what I have. Okay, fair enough. And just to confirm, do you take American Express? Nope, they can shove the extra point up the tuchus. MasterCard? No, ma'am. Discover. Listen, lady, like I told you, I run a legitimate business. Of course I take Discover. Okay, great. See you in half an hour. Koyana Scotsy Wheels and Mental Health Services. We balance tires. We balance lives.